Ata Maria Tafanai. Good to see you all. Um, welcome along, I guess, if I can say that. Welcome to the um, Cape and Ray students. And, and actually, Jeremy mentioning before that um, perhaps he had got the memo that Cape and Ray students always sit up here. Actually, it made me wonder, you know, the really staggering thing is, is how do they always know? Like, every time there's a fresh batch of Cape and Ray students, they're like sea turtles that um, they just know where to go, you know, when it's time to lay those eggs or whatever. They just come right to the slot. So, but then you couldn't today because it was all full up, which doesn't normally happen. So it's a total wacky Wednesday situation here on this Sunday. Um, but uh, yeah, good to see you all. And um, yeah, real warm welcome to, to Cameron students and everyone else. We are carrying on our uh, series in First John, and we're pretty much carrying on like a very, in a similar vein from what we looked at last week. I was speaking last week as well. So we're going to be sort of building on what we covered last week just a little bit. Before we um, get into the passage, which is First John 4, if you want to flip there or look at it, search it in your app or whatever, um, that's where we're going to be. But just to start with, you might have at the beginning of the year heard about um, what's been called the Asbury Revival. And um, according to Wikipedia, it started on February 8th and ended on uh, February 24th, if you can put uh, end date on something like that. But um, you might have heard about this, if not, you're hearing about it now. Um, and it was uh, basically began as a kind of a, a worship service at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky in the United States. And uh, people came along and worshipped, and then it, it just didn't stop. They just stayed and kept going, and then more people came and uh, joined in the worship, and they were praying together, confessing their sins to each other, all this sort of a thing. And, um, yeah, and it's been called that Asbury Revival, and, um, you know, I don't know m- much about it, but, um, and I don't want us to make any kind of judgment about it today. Um, we're not that close to it um, in, in any sense. Maybe you know someone connected, but um, basically here, this is not, you know, I think we're not in a position to maybe cast judgment on, you know, is it authentic or not or whatever, Um, and that's not what I want to do. I just want to bring it up and sort of say, like, when something like this happens, and you sort of think about, what do I think about this? You might have a tendency to think one way or the other. You you might be kind of tend towards belief, like, yeah, this is real, this is a genuine work of the Spirit, and I'm excited about that. Or you might think, no, 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 it's just hype, and it can't be real, and and maybe you have a tendency to go to one extreme or the other. Some of you might just sort of go, look, hey, we, we don't know. It could, well, let's see. Or, you know, it's not ours to judge. We're not really there or whatever. But w- some of us might have a kind of knee-jerk response to go one way or the other. And uh, when we do that, in some senses, I don't want to be mean, but it might be a little bit like the lazy option to just sort of dismiss something or to fully accept it right out of hand. Because we're looking at today in the book of 1 John at this uh, issue of discernment. Um, And we were talking a bit about that last week. And you remember the focus last week was on the way to really tell if people are the real deal in terms of their faith is they do love. They don't just speak it. They don't just say, I love you. But they actually engage in loving action towards other people. Um, they do love. And that, that's one really important aspect of discernment. But there's this other important aspect. And um, in First John, he refers to it as testing the Spirit. So let's read um, the passage here. 
let me just, sorry, let me just give you a little bit of background before we get into it. Obviously, at this point in the biblical story, Jesus has um, come and, and died, rose again, uh, ascended, uh, essentially being crowned, if you like, um, and recognized as king, God's anointed Messiah, chosen one. And, but the early church, I mean, they don't have a, the Bible yet, right? They have the Old Testament, but they don't have the Bible as we know it. And they're still kind of working some stuff out. And they're heavily relying on what the apostles, those that knew Jesus, taught. And John is one of these apostles. And what seems to have happened in this community is that there's been a dispute about how to understand Jesus. And there's been a kind of a split. And this community is hurting. You know, there's pressure from the government in this time in the church's early history. There's pressure from society. It's not sort of a respectable thing to be a Christian. And, and some of that pressure kind of creates some sort of fracture along what we might call doctrinal lines, to use a kind of technical term, about what we believe about Jesus. That's what's going on here. And they've walked away and they've split and they're hurting. And so John says this, Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They're from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We're from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever's not from God doesn't listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. We are, according to John, to test the spirits. And, you know, in the biblical imagination, and I don't mean imagination as in it's not true, I mean just their sort of gut-level way of understanding reality is that there's more to this world than meets the eye. It's not just what we can see and touch, but there are what we might call spirits. There are these unseen, unseen sorry, uh, heavenly creatures or, or spiritual beings that, um, although we can't see, they have influence on our world. And he says in verse 6, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a spirit of truth and a spirit of falsehood. Now, you'll remember last week, if you were here, there was sort of a bit of a complex little diagram going on, basically talking about saying that, you know, in, as someone with real faith, the spirit of God lives in them and enables them to keep God's command to love others, to do love. And then in turn, through the Spirit's testimony, that becomes a kind of evidence to, the, to you that the faith is real. It's sort of the circular sort of thing. But there is also this other command to believe. So there's action involved. And we're not saying there, by the way, that you're earning your salvation. It's simply that the action is part of the evidence that the faith is real. But there's also some, uh, there's a command about what we believe, and it's specifically to believe in Jesus. That's what John's really focused on. It's about belief in Jesus. And 
he uses that phrase, um, in the flesh. So look at verse 2. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So as we're trying to test the spirits, if you like, or discern what's, what's true and what's not, for John, not only do we look at the evidence in someone's life or in a community's life, and if they do love, that's a part of the picture, but another thing is, what do they believe? What do they confess? And an important thing for John is that they confess that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh. The technical word is incarnation, the idea that God himself became a part of his creation, became a human being in the flesh. This is really, really important, and John repeats this quite a bit. Now, before we kind of go into that in the flesh stuff a little bit more, I want us just to look at this word, you might have, might have jumped out at you, antichrist, verses two and three. Um, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Okay, so Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which is the Hebrew or Aramaic word, and, it's, um, and it means God's anointed one, God's chosen king, or something along those lines. So like, kind of like a coronation. An Antichrist is simply a person that is in opposition to God's anointed one, Jesus Christ. Now, when, if you've grown up in church or spent a serious amount of time in church, you might have heard this phrase or this word antichrist, and we usually have associated it with sometime off in the future there's going to be some sort of individual who is opposed to God and is the antichrist. And John seems to hint at something a bit like that. By the way, we often associate Antichrist with the book of Revelation, but it, it doesn't, the word doesn't appear in Revelation, um, though there are figures that you could maybe label that way there. But what John wants to say is like, okay, you've heard about this Antichrist individual figure who is the opposition to Jesus, but actually, let me tell you, there's already Antichrist all around. There's already opposition. There's already people who are in opposition to God's anointed one. And the implication is, well, I mean, he just says it, basically. The people that have denied that the Son of God has come in the flesh, that's them. And it's a falsehood. It's not true. It's false. Now, Antichrist is a label I don't uh, recommend we throw around. And often Christians have done that, and we're often, like, engaged in speculation about this world leader must be the Antichrist or whatever. Don't do that, in my opinion. Just don't. I don't think it's very productive, and I don't know, that might rankle you to hear that, but I don't think that's what we're meant to be about. I think what John is wanting us to say here is like, look, even in the present moment, even now, there's falsehood around, and we need to be alert to that and be aware of that. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't go around throwing around Antichrist at people, but it's a recognition that, okay, but beyond the sort of mundane that we see, there are this the world, this world, the spiritual realm, and it has influence on what's going on here. But it does show us too, like if you've grown up hearing about the Antichrist and you might have watched movies and read books and so on along those lines, you can imagine this individual figure who um, is sort of like almost embodies evil, 
I get the sense from what John's saying here is that the sort of antichrist or the spirit of falsehood can be quite mundane. It can look kind of ordinary. It might not just leap out at you and, and announce itself as being obviously in op- opposition to the Christ, to Jesus. Um, and that's why discernment becomes so important. So what do, we, what do we need to believe? What is it that really is so important? And like I've said, it's this idea that Jesus has come in the flesh. By the way, this is um, from Second John. I've just put up a verse there where he says almost exactly the same thing, that the, the Antichrist is, is the deceiver, is the person who is saying falsehoods about who Jesus is, and it's specifically about this idea of coming in the flesh. And you might think, okay, what is the big deal with coming in the flesh? Isn't, isn't the incarnation, if you like, just kind of what we need to get to the real business of the cross and Jesus coming back to life, resurrection? That's sometimes how we think. Another way to think about it is like at Christmas we celebrate um, birth of Jesus. That's, sort of, that's the, like incarnation. And at Easter we celebrate Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And sometimes we just think, well, Christmas is just kind of like the prelude to the e- Easter, and that's where the real action is. But there's actually more to God taking on humanity to himself than just sort of like, hey, this is how he gets to the cross. It's more than that. There's something in actually taking on our humanity that means that Jesus' salvific work, his saving work, I should say, actually applies to us. It makes it stick. It makes it effective for us as humans because he's become one of us. So salvation actually kind of reaches us. Another way that some theologians have put it is the idea that, well, there's a famous old school theologian way back in the day who said that which he has not assumed, assumed in the sense of taking on, he has not healed. So the inverse of that is that whatever he has taken on in the incarnation, he has healed. If he doesn't take on our humanity, if he doesn't take on our in the fleshness, then that is not healed. It's not fixed. It's not saved. And so incarnation is part of our salvation. It's not the full picture, but it's really, really important. And sometimes we, f- we slip into a way of thinking where it's like, Jesus, it's so amazing that we kind of subtly imagine that he wasn't really human. There's some sort of Superman or something like that. And the likes of John and other New Testament authors will insist, no, not a Superman. Uh, yes, the Son of God, but absolutely human in the flesh. So, you know, it means that Jesus would have had zits and gone to the bathroom and, you know, um, been drinking some water and it went down the wrong pipe and he's coughing and spluttering and it's so undignified and he gets all red in the face and stands up and thinks, oh, you know. And if you have a problem with that, I mean, I get it, but you've got to deal with it <laughs> because he came in the flesh. And people throughout church history have had a trouble, have trouble with that. Surely God cannot become this. But actually the Bible says this was created good. And also, humanity is created in the image of God. I don't think that God could have incarnated as a rock or as a chimpanzee or as the sun in the sky. We are made in the image of God, and so God, the fullness of God, can dwell in a man, and that man is Jesus, and he is the Son of God, come in the flesh. 
And incarnation is so important. And it's so good because also in the incarnation, it's like God is saying, I get you. I get you. I know what it's like. I've been there. It's so good. I, 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 great topic, fun topic, and I love it, but we won't dwell on it too much. But just to say that, look, at Christmas time, we can keep singing that line, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, that's fine. Just so long as you remember, as soon as he pooped his nappy, he was crying. And if that, again, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, you've got some work to do. Because we've got to grapple with the reality that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, and it's so important for John. And you might think, okay, so is that it? Is that all there is? Is, Does nothing else matter about what we say about Jesus? I don't think that's what the implication here is. It's not saying that the only thing you need to believe is that Jesus came in the flesh. I think that's what John is saying very clearly here to this community because that has been the, the sticking point. That's been where the debate has been. I mean, even in um, chapter 5, verse 1, John says something very similar, but it is slightly different. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That's recognizing not only that he came in the flesh, but he is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one. So there's another little nuance there. Paul says in Romans 10 um, that you need to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. But what strikes me, so, so I guess there's a little bit more than just saying Jesus has come in the flesh. In other words, another way of putting it is, what are the essentials when it comes to our beliefs about God? What are the essentials? What are the non-negotiables? And maybe it's not just that one in the flesh, but what does strike me is, I don't think when we kind of put all the New Testament stuff on this topic together, I don't think we're talking about a massive list. You know, and, and sometimes we get really hung up on sort of theological systems. Some of you, you don't, what's a theological system? Let me just assure you, you're not hung up on one, if that's the case. But others, people, they, they love studying theology and they get into a particular kind of the, theology and that's fine, that's an inevitable. I mean, we all have one whether we recognize it or not. But get so hung up on it that they sort of think that if you don't subscribe to these 101 points of theology, then you're not, you're not the real deal. And John doesn't say that. He's saying the real deal are those who do love, acknowledge Jesus has come in the flesh, and maybe we would add with the New Testament kind of witness fleshing it out, a, a few other little points, but not a lot. And to me, that's kind of challenging. It, it, it it raises a bit of a difficult tension for us because on the one hand, we've got this notion of spiritual protection. And I think that that's what John is, that's what he's doing here in this letter. He is wanting to protect his, his people, his community. And say, look, we are hurting. And some of us left and they didn't believe the same stuff as us. And so he's saying, like, be on your guard, be discerning. But I do think, too, that we can, if, we, if that's just the only side of the equation, then we might actually forget the other side and cause unnecessary division. You know, we might become so obsessed with all that kind of the finer details of our particular understanding of, of God that we might think that anyone else who disagrees with us, we, like, want to cut them off. 
And I don't think that would be fair to what John is actually really trying to do here. So there's a little bit of a, a, a bit of a balancing act, if you like. A little bit of a tension that we have to just hold there between this sort of protection and division and not wanting to sort of um, leap over the edge one way or the other. So the question, I guess, is, okay, so what are the essentials? Like, what are the things that are absolutely non-negotiable that we cannot compromise on? Well, that's a complicated question, um, and we're not going to totally settle it, but one way that some Christian traditions have tried to settle this question um, is by uh, appealing to creeds, early church creeds, like early Christian statements about this is what we believe. Example, the Apostles' Creed. Now, in a church like this, we don't make a big deal out of creeds. Um, some churches do, some, some don't. We don't make a big deal out of them. We don't tend to say them, although we do sometimes sing this one, even if you didn't realize it. Um, it we, we sometimes sing a song that's um, based on this. But, but what's here, whether we really value it or not, because not, this is not Scripture, but what this is, is the early church going, hey, the apostles, the apostles, this is what they taught. This, these are, in a sense, the essentials that we all kind of need to agree on. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but like, even if we don't say this in church very much or make a big deal out of it, I, most of us would be able to affirm what's up there. And most Christian groups or groups that are purporting to be Christians throughout history and all times and places have basically been able to affirm something like this. So you might say, okay, this is maybe one way that we could it come at the question of what are the essentials? But again, it's not big. It's not huge. And so, yeah, we're left with a little bit of a, I don't know what I would call it a dilemma exactly, but a challenge. It's a challenge. Because it's not as simple as saying, hey, if you don't agree to my theological system in every, every finer point, then you're not one of us. But on the other hand, we don't want to become so sort of wishy-washy about what we believe that we're not discerning and, and aware that, you know, there could be spirit of falsehood floating around and, and we're not alert to it. So there's, I don't know, we have to be grown up. We have to be spiritually mature. We have to exercise and develop our discernment. You know, in Titus 3, um, Paul says this, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive pers person once and then warn them a second time and after that have nothing to do with them. He's saying, look, we can get caught up on all these foolish controversies, you know, theological, this and that, and it, and it actually isn't like, it's not the essentials. Now, that's not to say that anything that's not essential is not worth arguing about or debating or caring about, because some of these things really, really matter. And as I said last week, I mean, I am in a sense a theologian. That is what I have studied. I care about theology, and it matters. But sometimes it gets to a point where we're making a mountain out of a molehill, and it becomes something that is divisive when it shouldn't be like that. And some, Paul's saying here, look, some people are going to use these theological debates, if you like, foolish controversies that ultimately shouldn't divide us, but they use it and it creates division. And there's something in us that kind of, it appeals to us sometimes. 
Like I think, or maybe not to everyone, but there's a certain kind of person, I might be one of them, um, who, you know, you've got a theological debate and you want to pick a side and then and you kind of feel like you belong to this tribe and you get kind of a, a kind of a kick out of thinking how wrong that other tribe is. This is just this is just confession time. <laughs> this is what this is kind of what appeals to us sometimes, you know? Um, and, and we get kind of overly tribal, I think. So at the same time, so we recognize, okay, that's not good. But at the same time, we really want to stand for truth. We want to discern the spirit of truth and spirit of falsehood. And we don't want to be suckered in. We don't want to be wishy-washy. So how do we do this? It's a tension. It's a, it's a tightrope that we have to walk. How do we do it? I don't think there's any kind of easy answer, except we need to require, it requires discernment. Now let me share with you a kind of a phrase, a saying that is often said um, in the Christian history um, that is, for those that care, often attributed to a guy called Peter Meidelin, uh, but now it's being debated and, who, you know, maybe that's a foolish controversy, I don't know. But um, this is a phrase that's often thrown around in theological circles, and, and I think there's a lot of merit to it. In essentials, unity. So things that really, like, are non-negotiable, we're unified, we agree, and it's important that we agree. And that's kind of what John's tapping into here. There's some things that we don't, we don't compromise on. For John, that's the in the fleshness of Jesus. And essentials, unity. And non-essentials, liberty. So things that aren't essential, you can pick a side or pick a, a position. And it doesn't mean that you're not a real Christian. And it doesn't mean that that person who disagrees with you on a non-essential is not a real Christian just because you, you like that feeling of being right or something. You, you, we tend to assume we are, right? In all things, charity. Charity is kind of like this old-fashioned word that really just means love. In all things, in all these debates that we might have, love. That's how, how we act towards each other. John wants us to do love. And we've always recognized in the, in the Christian tradition that we are, are to be a people who do love. At least that's always been the ideal. Sometimes we lose sight of that. But I want to I say, I mean, this is, this is beautiful like this. But for our purposes today, I just want to add in a little something. At all times, discernment. And essentials, unity. And non-essentials, liberty. At all times, discernment. And on all things, charity. So we do need to develop this our discernment muscles a lot. And another way to put it in is to say we need to develop wisdom. That's a word that the Bible uses a lot, encourages us to develop wisdom. How do we develop wisdom? How do we develop discernment? The Bible gives us a lot of tips. I'm just going to fly through them and then just focus on one that I think is particularly important today. So how do we cultivate wisdom? Well, Proverbs 1 says to revere God or fear God, to hold God in awe. Proverbs just after that says, listen to your parents. You learn from your parents. Um, James says to ask God. If you don't have wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. Uh, Psalm says we need to study the Scriptures, and in doing so, uh, the, it's making wise the simple. Um, and, and it's like taking someone who doesn't, not very wise, and through studying of Scripture, they become wise. I want to focus on one other thing. Let me just kind of come at it slant a little bit. There's a guy called um, Guillaume Chasler, who's a French IT nerd, and he worked, he used to work for YouTube, 
and he was pretty pumped when he started working for YouTube, and I feel like this is around 2010, sometime around then. Um, he started working for YouTube, and um, they gave him a job to, to create a better recommendation system. So YouTube, obviously, is this platform where you can watch tons of videos, and people do watch tons of videos on YouTube, a lot of them. And when you watch one, on the side of the screen, there's this like, thing on the side, right? That thing that recommends more videos. And it used to be that YouTube operated on like clicks, that the videos that got the most clicks, those are the sorts of things that they would recommend. But then they realized, no, 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 what we really want is watch time. What we want is we want people to watch YouTube for as long as possible so that we can then sell more advertising and make more money. And so they, they wanted to change the algorithm, and that's where Guillaume Chaslow comes in. And they say, Guillaume, this is your job. We want you to get people to watch YouTube for as long as possible. So create a recommendation system that is dynamite. And he does it. He probably had a team, but he was involved, and he does it. He's very proud of his work because it works really well, and it keeps people watching. And then he starts to be alarmed by what he sees. He's sitting next to a guy on the bus and sees he's going through YouTube and just won't stop watching some very wacky videos and just keeps watching more and more of the same sort of a thing and going down what we now tend to refer to as the rabbit hole, further and further into a particular way of thinking that actually the spirit of falsehood might be behind that. And so he actually created an algorithm that did the opposite so that when you... Um, when you watch a the video, then it would kind of go, hey, why don't you watch one from the other side of the debate? And um, YouTube didn't really want that, and, um, and he got fired. Um, and then he became an activist. Now, we live in that kind of world, and he calls it a filter bubble. A filter bubble where you just are constantly engaging with things that affirm your, your way of thinking and make you feel even more right, and that anyone who disagrees with you must be even more wrong, and they're how stupid they are for disagreeing. And you go down, and you live in this filter bubble, you go down the rabbit hole. Now, this can happen with all sorts of things, and experts are saying, look, the filter bubble is at least partly responsible for all sorts of things, from the resurgence of the flat earth theory, to um, the 2016 election in the United States, to how we all responded to COVID, to even the, the massacre in Christchurch, all those sorts of things, the massacre in Christchurch, all those things, experts are saying, look, the filter bubble, where people just go down the rabbit hole and they only hear one side or one picture or one take on reality is doing all sorts of destructive stuff. Now, a lot of us get our theology from YouTube or from blogs or from Twitter. Maybe that's not the whole, some total of it, but maybe it is for some. And that's great. It's great technology that we can tap into, very useful but one of the dangers is we end up in a bit of a filter bubble. And if we just kind of like going down the YouTube rabbit hole or whatever podcast or whatever by ourselves, I don't know, I think there's a danger there that we might end up uh, getting sucked in by a spirit of falsehood. And so there's this, this uh, principle that we draw from Colossians that says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Cultivating wisdom is something that we do with one another. Now, because the body of Christ is global, 
and throughout much of history, we can thankfully tap into that and learn from sisters and brothers all over the world, and that's a part of it, you know, through platforms like YouTube. But I would suggest that if that's where you're getting all your input and all your kind of understanding of what we ought to believe as Christians, I want to say take it offline a little bit, balance it out by engaging with this community, a faith community, people who you actually sit down and talk to face to face. Because if we're cultivating wisdom amongst or with one another, we're going to be called back from anything too wacky, anything that maybe we didn't realize was essential and actually is an essential. And it also teaches us humility, realizing, oh, there's actually some differences of opinion, and we can actually love each other even if we disagree on some of the secondary stuff. So long as we agree on the essentials, the primary things, we are sisters and brothers, and we need to act like it and, and extend charity, show charity to everybody in all things. Charity. Gosh, it's quite, um, it's quite a tightrope, isn't it? Um, and it's a challenge in the world that we live in because it's just there, there are filter bubbles everywhere and that appeals to some sort of fallen part of us or some of us, I think. Um, and it's not like an easy solution, you know. On the one hand, we don't want to be foolish and, and unguarded and just get, be gullible and sucked into everything. On the other hand, we want to be able to recognize what is essential, what is essential to being part of the people of God and what are things that maybe are important but are less essential, and therefore we can debate in love with each other. We have to cultivate wisdom. There is no shortcut. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome the spirit of falsehood because the one who is in you, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, is greater than the one who is in the world. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, it seems appropriate, I think, to address you. You are the Spirit of truth. Give us discernment, we pray. It's so difficult in our world. There seems to be so many different perspectives on everything. And then when we come to our faith, that can be the case too. And sometimes if we're just going it alone, it can be really confusing. So I just really pray that you'd give us all wisdom and yes, we pray like James encourages us to do. Just We just want to ask you for wisdom. Make us wise. We recognize too that wisdom is a process and it's something that we work at and we cultivate. Help us to cultivate it in community with one another um, so that we don't end up kind of getting sucked into something and, and going along with a spirit of falsehood. I thank you for the in-fleshness of Jesus Christ. And the fact that in that, it's like you, God, you are saying to us, I get you. It's so important. And it's such good news. And we have such good news. Help us to be discerning, not lose a grip on it, and help us to share it with others, we pray. Amen.